the most difficult thing about being an entrepreneur amongst other things is no one gets you but you can't you can't explain the drive meet david coming to the uk to study from zimbabwe to create a better life for himself driven by the high aspirations his parents had for him building his career making good money meeting his wife starting a family and pursuing his dream of a great business but at what cost hear david's story my name's richard osborne and this is drive the small business podcast from ukbf david thank you for coming in thank you richard thank you for having me today it was a pleasure we met at one of our ukbf events in northampton yes. And I think it was like one of, if it wasn't your first, it was one of the earliest sort of networking events you'd ever been to. In Northampton. Yeah. Yes. And I remember you, um, you sort of coming in and the, you was a little bit sort of uncertain, but you got, you got speaking uh, with sort yes. of some of the other uh, guests, people who are attending and networking there. Yes. And I remember you sharing part of your story and uh, listening to you talk, I thought this is really it's inspiring and interesting. Okay, and I thought you. it'd be great to have you on the show, uh, on the, the Drive podcast, and share your story with us. Yes, yeah. thank you. Thank you very much. It was very interesting because, as you know, in the entrepreneurial journey, you are most of the times you're on your own, especially yeah. when you're a startup and in the early days of it. And, it's good to find a sort of kinship group. You know, you find a group of people who have got the same battle scars, as it were. You know, <laughs> yes. People have been through the same, who've traversed the same sort of journey. And so it's, I, I quite liked it. I, I, I haven't done more and I wish I could do a bit more. And I'm glad that, you know, we stayed in touch and you've got me here today. Yeah. And to tell my part of the story, it's, it's an ongoing story. It's not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not in the millions yet, you know, I'm working on it. No. But, you know, definitely it was, it was interesting to meet you and uh, to hear your story as well. Yeah, well, the part that I found interesting really was, and really what the podcast is about, is when people who you say, you know, not into the millions yet, but that's not the important part to me personally yes. or to what UKBF is about, what mm -hmm. UKBF represents. And generally what 19, more than 99% of all business owners, uh, self-employed people in the UK, mm they are making a living and finding their field and building their small business. Yes. And that was great from yourself. Uh, so what I'd like to do is start mm -hmm. to sort of build that picture up okay. of your journey that took you to where you are today mm -hmm. and some of the obstacles you've overcome, yes. uh, challenges you faced, and then sort of um, the, some, even to some of the knocks that as you've started yes. your own business that you've mm. hit upon. So the if we go right back to the beginning, mm -hmm. so you was born in Zambia but raised in Zimbabwe. Yes, um, I was born in the colonial times, and at the age of three, Zimbabwe gained its independence, yeah. 1980. So my parents then, with everyone else, they migrated on a train across the Zambezi, if you know that river, yeah. if you know the uh, Victoria Falls. So the right. train actually goes cuts across Victoria Falls into Zimbabwe. That's the sort of drama of the journey. And uh, <laughs> and then I was raised in Zim, a brand new country at that point, you know. Uh, and um, uh, to my father was a lawyer who studied in Russia. My mom was a school teacher. And I was raised in a conservative sort of family, you know, with fairly strong Christian values, if you want to call it that, or religious values. And... Um, 
along the way, I sort of had a lot of sort of interest in sort of each time you gave me a toy as a kid, my parents would say, I would take it apart and then try to put it back together. I always had this sort of curious mind in one of my one of my dad's friends fairly early on. He said, you know, this this boy is going to be an engineer. You know, it, it never happened, but somewhere along the way, so as, as, like, as I grew older, it sort of started to join up, you know, with that sort of, if you want to call it prophecy, as it were, you know, back in the 80s. Um, so I went to school like any other child, and my I was very good in most of my, most of the stuff I did at school was very good. And so I did my, what used to be known as all levels, and I did my GCSEs, apart, GCSEs and A-levels, I passed all of that, but most of what I was... I was actually sent to a school that was more centered on academics. Yeah. And my mom discouraged me as much as possible as a young person to stop drawing, to stop putting things <laughs> apart. So I was supposed to be, as it were, a, a, I was an A student. So the expectation was that I'm going to be, you know, in the academics kind of thing. Yeah, I picked that up yeah. that where your parents, you say, a teacher and a lawyer, yes, um, they are both very academic roles. They themselves, yes. Uh, and you mentioned that uh, previously, um, I'm talking about your parents raised you to be very stoic and a very sort of hard work, hard yes. work ethic. Yes. Uh, so the they clearly, your parents had very high aspirations for you. They did, and and they sort of saw investing in me as a child who had a lot of potential to do a lot of big things, and so when I went to A level, I I, I I sort of sort of well secondary school altogether really, I sort of dropped all of the other things that were non-academic, so I was quite sporty. I used to play basketball. I used to play. I used to run. I never really played football. I was skinny enough to sort of do a bit of rugby, but I never actually did the school concentrated on academics. So that was the idea that, you know, you, you do your books, you pass, and then you do something big, like become a lawyer as well. Mm-hmm. Such that when I migrated to the UK, which was sort of when I was about 21, and I came here on my own, you know, I, I, had, no, I had no family here. I was just a 21-year-old looking for, at, at that point, there was something of, a, of an opening. The UK was advertising in, in uh, the... Um, what they call the British Councils all over the world. They've got these places called the British Council, yeah. which sort of advertises the UK life to people who they're encouraging to migrate. Okay. So a lot of the migration that was happening in 1999, that sort of time, 97, 98, especially from Zim, was encouraged by the uh, British uh, Council to say, you know, apply these jobs in England, there's nursing, there's anything, or just come and learn and then you can develop yourself. So I took that opportunity. Yeah. I convinced my parents that, you know, let me go to... Um, let, let, let me go to UK, you know, make a life for myself. And that, that's something that took them a long time to see the point of doing it. They thought, you know, you know, be here and become a lawyer, do something here in Zim. You don't need to go to the UK. But I, I had my own sort of internal drive, as this uh, podcast is called, you know. And, yeah. and in fact, to take you back a little bit, you know, during that time, even though I was expected to be a, an academic sort of child, there was a time when my dad had done some deals with uh, some of his colleagues and they had a lot of what were known what are crocodile skins in the house, right. uh, leftover from this deal that had sort of gone bad. And so these crocodile skins were just stuff lying around in our house in boxes that just... As in literal crocodile yes. skins. Yes. So <clears throat> I can sort of give you a bit of context. So in yeah. Zimbabwe, there's a lot of wildlife. Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, people who make things out of wildlife, uh, skin, hide, and stuff like that. So you've got, yeah. you've got elephant shoes, you've got yeah. ostrich belts and ostrich handbags. 
But this is back then. I don't, I don't think it's that easy to sort of play around with things like that anymore. And then there's an industry that sort of keeps crocodiles. Okay. But they keep the young ones for slaughter, yeah. for meat, yeah. in restaurants where people eat crocodile meat. And then the skin, the tender skin, which is still thin, it hasn't got the big chunky scales. The scales are much smaller. Yeah. That's used to make garments or to make belts. So this stuff was in our house, it, all legal, nothing illegal, nothing sort of shady. That's just what was uh, what my dad had been into at that time. So whilst he was teaching, yeah. Uh, yeah. was he still teaching? No, he was. Time? At this point, he's working in the government. He's, he's a oh, civil servant okay. within the Ministry of Justice. Yeah. So, you know, that, that was him. The teacher was mum. Right. So he, he had done this deal with, because he could speak Russian. So he had met some Russians and they'd done these deals and it never really went anywhere. But there was all this leftover material. And so it had been in our house for a good five, six years and nothing had happened. It's just boxes piled in one of the spare rooms. And so I said to my dad, you know, why don't I take these things and make something of them? And I'm 16 years old at this time, 16, 17, I think. And so I, from my own thought processes, I started researching about these crocodile skin belts and crocodile skin products. And then I took these, these skins and I had the guy cut them into belts. And then that was my first sort of foray into the game of, um, of entrepreneurship at this point because then I took these belts and I started selling them in the flea markets and in some of the shops so imagine at that point that your your normal belt that you just wear a leather belt would probably cost about ten dollars at that time because our money was a bit closer to the, to the US dollar yeah. and these crocodile skin belts were hundred and fifty dollars so you're that's the normal retail that's the normal yeah. the actual retail price yeah and I was selling them at a flea market for a hundred dollars so at this point, I got this thing in me that, you know, That's I could quite actually, good money. it was quite good money. Yeah. And all of it wasn't my money. I was just giving it back to my dad. No. He kind of encouraged it a little bit, but he still thought, you know, I don't want you to be a market seller. You know, I, I really want you to wear a suit and work in an office. You That's know. interesting then that I see that. So from your perspective mm. at that point, you um, felt motivated and you did. Mm-hmm. to take all this stock that was sat there and start to generate some income, which he was paying back to your father. Yeah. Presumably he had spent a load of money on them and wasn't getting that money back. Is yeah, that, yeah. It, it, was, it was kind of almost like waste. Like it wasn't, yeah. it's just left over from a deal that really didn't yield any money for him. So it's all done and dusted. So it's all done and dusted. You know, yeah. say you were selling books at some point and, you know, they're not selling that much. You've just got them piled up in your house. And you uh, from his perspective... He saw you going down flea market, yes. sort of market trader route. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm guessing couldn't see anything beyond that and wanted mm-hmm. to rein you back in to, to follow in his footsteps as yes. a lawyer or something along those yes. sort of lines. Yeah. So, so, but to me, when I look back, this was sort of the real seeds of sort of entrepreneurship within me. Yeah. This idea of seeing things that at, at the point they just look like waste and then turning them into... Yeah. Um, turning them into products and then turning that into money. So at some point I ran out of those those things and then I gave all of the money to my dad. So I had no, I had no sort of, <laughs> I had no bank account to sit on to say, you know, I made all this money. I did, I, I remember buying myself a pair of Timberland boots or something like that. That's, that's, that's all I remember doing. But I just remember the, the buzz and the feeling of creating something out of nothing, you know, out of my own sheer effort kind of thing. So, and then when I came here, I found myself, I started to study law but it became... How did yeah. that feel, sorry? When, when, because <clears throat> uh, I can't imagine, you obviously saw the promotional, the sales message, yes. come to the UK, great opportunities, yes. whatever the 
the message may be at that time to actually uphill and actually and, and make that move to a completely um, foreign country yes. that you've just seen the sales brochure, like yes. going on a holiday. Yes. Uh, so you see the holiday brochures and mm-hmm. they paint all the sort of perfect picture of the, you know, the great bars, the great food and drink. Yes. The, the what was it really like when you when you step off that plane boat area, you know, when you when you arrive in the UK, your mm. first few months in in UK. In Blighton. What was <coughs> what in Blighton? Yeah. Uh, presume London then you Yeah, it was yeah. my the first place I stayed in was Luton Town. Luton. Oh, yeah. I was born in Luton. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, the, uh, so um what was uh, so what was your first few months like yeah. in Luton? So it wasn't particularly easy, but you see you've got to remember the thing that drove me was this belief that I'll be successful. So everything that was in front of me was just kind of something that I'm just going to wave out of my way and I'm going to create a path. That's always been kind of my, yeah. my makeup kind of thing. So I don't always sort of acknowledge the, um, if you like, the, the obstacles yeah. or the things like what you said to, what you mentioned before, that I was raised to be stoic and to, to be focused. Yeah. And that's the thing I always had about me. So there was a lot of things that were very difficult in the beginning. You know, you remember I, I step off the plane, I'm wearing a suit, um, and I'm wearing shoes, just normal leather shoes and socks, thin socks. And I don't have a coat and it's on the 7th. It's a lot colder. It, it, it was a lot colder. <laughs> it was, it was, it was in, uh, in March when I came. Oh. And I've got a jumper, but I put on that jumper underneath my suit jacket and it's, I'm still freezing, you know. <laughs> this place is really weird. And then I went over to a friend of mine and he put me up and he shows me around and then I buy my first coat, you know, my first uh, puffer jacket out of the Luton market. You know, <laughs> the Luton market at the back of the Arndel. Yeah, just yeah, yeah, the Arndel back that, in the yeah, day. Yeah. You know, and um, I'm sort of looking around, what, is, what am I going to do? But I, I had a lot more excitement than I had fear. And you, you know, just mentioned there a friend. So you had a friend yes. already here yes. that, to welcome you. So that um, that probably made the landing softer. It made the landing softer. It meant I, I had somewhere to go. I mean, I had made yeah. these arrangements beforehand. Uh, there was actually a, a bit of a, uh, something a bit weird happened. The family that was uh, friends with my dad were supposed to look after me when I came. Uh, it, something happened and I, and I couldn't sort of stay with them. So I had to sort of start creating my own path at this point everything that had been the plan had fallen apart right at the airport kind of thing right. and this is 1999 you know so i look back at it like you know it was character building stuff as they call yeah. it it was it was terrifying a little bit but i remember speaking to my dad on the phone he's like you know my son you're there just make your plan you know stick yeah. to your plan and work your plan things will come together and i had enough money to sort of look after myself for some time and then my friend says you know i'm only in student accommodation i can't really keep you you can't really stay with me for too long so I went across to uh, other friends in Leeds. Yeah. So I ended up in Leeds. And I went across. I yeah. thought you were going to say like across the road there. You no, no, no. Went way oh, up way the M1. Up, you know, okay. what was that? Four hours drive, you know, up the M1 on the, on the National Express. So you wasn't, um, so when you went to university, you, you, you came over to the UK and yes. you, uh, you studied for a couple of years. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so when you, <clears> It wasn't Luton <throat> University. It wasn't you, Luton no. University. So I, I kind of moved around quite a bit trying to find my feet as it were at that yeah. time. So I ended up in Leeds and at Leeds I didn't actually stay with friends. You know, I had my money that I had, they helped me to find my own place to stay. So, yeah. and then I started looking for my own way and I'm following all of the protocols. You follow what the rules are, you know, the immigration says you should do this, you should do that. So I ended up in applying for school 
and then I got a place in school, but that place was actually down in London. Right. So I stay in Leeds for a little bit. I get my place to go to university. I end up in, um, in actually ended up in Bexley Heath doing an access course. They said, you've got to do this access course, access to law. And then you go and study um, law at the University of North London. I think it's called, um, it's called Metropolitan now or something like that. Okay. It I used to be... Know. It used to be London Polytechnic, maybe back in the days in the, in the 1980s. So what was the time frame from here, from when you got off the plane yes. to when you found yourself starting university in London? How, how long was you moving around for? So I came in March 1999. Yeah. So September, I was already doing college. I'd already managed to set myself up. So I said I was doing... So it was sort of March to September. Yeah, I was back year. in London of the same year. Yeah. And then... I'm living in a place called Woolwich, um, yeah. and then I, I'm commuting into London, into um, University of North London, yeah. and we still had funding at that point. Yeah. So this was all, it all happened in about a year and a half, two years. Yeah. So we still had funding, so they were funding, so there was a charity that was involved in Zimbabwe that was funding our education kind of thing. Something happened with that, and I think there was a lot more of these other political stories coming out of Zimbabwe at that time um, to do with uh, land grabs and so on and so yeah. forth. So somewhere along the way, there was a bit of a negative sentiment around us. So the funding that we had for university was pulled out of us, pulled okay. away from us. So we, we, we couldn't sort of carry on. So we had to sort of start to negotiate our way around. So I ended up getting a job. Yeah. And in this job, I ended up working as a salesperson. Okay. And I'm in sales and I, you know, I don't know, my natural talents, as it were, decided to shine. <laughs> I started to do very, very well for myself. And at this point, we're only doing, a, the, the job was, uh, uh, call it debt collection or credit management. Yeah. And so we're giving money to, we're being paid to collect from sort of aged debts, people who couldn't pay their debts, people sort of written off their own debts, like they're not going to pay it. And then you'd negotiate with this person to pay back, you know, we're talking five, 10, 20,000 pounds, someone who's really, the idea was to make someone believe that they can actually get out of debt. Yeah. with your conversation and make them pay back their debt. Okay. Which was, it's, it's a fairly tall sort of order on someone to negotiate that sort of deal. And not many people could do it, but I found I could really do it. I was very successful at, uh, in, my, in that job. So I'm learning at this time, I'm learning a lot of things. I'm learning spreadsheets, I'm learning also money. That's quite money. a difficult negotiation. It is well, a very difficult negotiation. Because if you've got somebody who, and are these individuals or businesses? I'm assuming individuals. individuals. Yes. So you've got individuals mm -hmm. who are thousands of pounds in debt. Yes. And that's a quite a dark place to be. Yes. And then you've got somebody phoning up um, who want, you know, on behalf of the company wanting yes. that money back, whether yes. it's a credit card, loan, car, that's exactly it what it be. was. Yes. The, um, and you have to discuss with this person repayment terms and to get that money back. Yes. Uh, that's that's a difficult negotiation. It is a very difficult negotiation. So we weren't trained. I, I definitely value a lot of the training that I got from that job because mm. we were trained to develop relationships. We weren't trained to be debt collectors, to be door knockers, to scare people. The idea was to develop a relationship with the person you're speaking to, understand their circumstances, make it a consultative conversation kind of thing. Don't expect to make a call today and take payment from them today. Keep talking to them, keep talking, keep talking. Then understand their whole picture, their global picture of what's, what's their life like. So the guy who trained us was an American guy uh, who worked for Capital One or all these other big companies. 
And so his way of thinking was, you know, everyone to some extent has got some sort of assets or things that they could liquidate to get themselves out of a situation. Mm-hmm. So you'd have a conversation with someone who lives in a four bedroomed house and they're owing sort of 30, 40,000 pounds and they might lose that house. And you say to them, you know, how about you sell that house and, and, and downgrade and get a two bedroom house since your children are older? Think, those kind of conversations. Yeah. So they were very creative conversations. And so you'd speak to someone and they would actually hear what you're saying and they would end up sort of readjusting their lifestyle and end up getting out of debt. Yeah. So at the end of it, you would actually get cards and Christmas presents from the people that, that we're collecting debts from, you know. So, so this to me was a, a training ground for sort of negotiation, creative thinking, creative negotiation. And there was also, this is the first time I was actually learning spreadsheets, just how to manage things. And so you'd actually almost have a conversation where you're helping someone to manage their life. Okay. You know? um, um, I just want to roll back mm-hmm. partly just to make mm-hmm. sure, just to understand your journey from into that job mm-hmm. and the uh, education as well um, to pick up on where the transition was because you just mentioned a moment ago the funding ended yes and so I'm picked I'm drawing a picture in my mind that your future of your developing your legal qualification yes. you're studying is coming under threat and then you're taking yes. a job which you learn a lot from but yes. um was you able to finish your studies or did you have to make a lifestyle, a life choice? Yes. To, um, because you had no choice. Yeah, so I had no choice because at the same time, so it was quite a, um, a volatile time at the same time because I, I just didn't know where my life was going to go. What am I going to do? Um, and I had to think on my feet. And then the journey now to actually finishing the law degree on sort of 12 grand a year now. I wasn't going to sort of be able to make 12,000 pounds a year and have enough time to do university. The journey just wouldn't make sense. And when we spoke to the career people, they'll say, you know, for you to actually become a lawyer, you could finish your degree, but you still need to do law school. You still, you're sort of, you know, from where you are right now, you're about seven years away from finishing your law degree. And my old man was not feeling well back home. And it was, it was, there was a lot of upheaval. Yeah. So I thought, you know what, and having sort of been to court and seen a lot of the other sort of uh, law in action, as it were, I wasn't that enthused by, by it, to be, to be honest with you. I, I, my, my mind sort of doesn't function like that. Like, just get a job, stay in that corner and just, you know, read legal papers and do... I just, I couldn't, I couldn't find excitement in the prospect of actually becoming a lawyer at some point, just having seen what it actually entails. How did your um, parents uh, back home feel about that happening and you choosing not to follow that career? And they, they, they didn't like it. And I think almost to this day, my, my father is, is gone now, you know, he, he died some years ago now. My mom still talks about it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's, you know I explained to her, you know, I made a choice. And I, I've got no regrets about the choice I made. And I'm, I've not sort of gone on sort of um, just lazy around, do nothing. I've gone on to do a lot of other things that I found very interesting. And for me, it's always been about the curiosity of life. It's always been about learning new things and doing new skills. And I've never been someone who's got a destination mentality that I just want to do this and stop. I, I've got a lot of things that I've got a lot of interest in. And which is kind of leads me to where, where I am now in, a, in the journey. None of it is actually linear. It doesn't actually make sense. But um, 
So I, I have no regrets about that. Even early on after I made the choice and I was kind of raised like that anyway, that, you know, once you, once you embark on something, once something is your journey, yeah. stick to it and make the most of it. Yeah. And that's, that's how I'm made. So I'm not someone who looks back a lot and regrets a lot and replace things that what if, what if, because I don't think, I don't think anyone ever benefits from that. I think if you've got a focus, if you've got a direction, if you've got, if you've got to change your focus and direction, let that be that. It's the, you know? um, some, it's funny, I was having a conversation with my daughter this weekend, just mm. gone because she runs her own business and she's had a bit of a challenge. Mm. And my advice to her was make a decision. Yes. Uh, and the decision you make uh, will be the best decision you can make based on the information yes. you have available at that time so make a decision commit to it you don't know what the future is going to be yes. and if hindsight teaches you in the future that actually the, you should have made a different decision that doesn't matter because you made the right decision or with the information you had at that time yes don't look back with any regret mm-hmm. um everything's a learning learning curve yeah, and that's that's always been how I've always sort of functioned. So as soon as I realized, you know, that this journey is not going to take me anywhere, this whole sort of trying to go back to university is not going to... I started to develop myself more in this direction where I ended up working in sales. And then out of, after that job, I ended up working in um, for a bank, uh, one of the older banks. And part of the things that we used to sell was... Uh, so that, that famous um, payment protection insurance. Oh, them good old days. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so my job was to give loans. Uh, I was a loans officer. It was, I was earning less than what I was earning at the old job, but I was in the bank now and I thought there was more prospect. Mm-hmm. And still, it kind of, it still stayed within that vein of doing deals and talking mm-hmm. to people and communicating, negotiating. And, and so the people that would come in, they are coming in for loans because they've been approved online and so they're coming in to negotiate terms and so a lot of that also involved looking at their financial circumstances so I'm sort of building a picture based on information I've got in front of me yeah. you know your credit file and your bank statement and your intentions of that money that kind of thing and so I did very well there and so I was sort of earning around 300% of my target you know three times what I was expected to, to, to do so yeah. I kept on sort of developing a lot of these skills you know, in the world of sales and in the world of negotiation and, and, and so on and so forth. And then I got into mortgages. Okay. But the timing for mortgages was just completely, completely, utterly off. Cause I'm just trying to think. So when was this? Because we obviously had the credit crunch and yes. the collapse of mortgages. So yes. was it before or after that time? So, so I worked at the bank uh, from 2003 yeah. uh, to 2007. All right, so, so 2007 was when that's the economy when it, collapsed with all the... Well, it collapsed in 2008. No. So I, I actually joined the uh, train, as it were, because everyone I knew was selling houses, uh, buying houses, selling houses, and some people were turning themselves into developers. I knew a couple of people bought Bentleys. <laughs> so I thought, you know what, I've, I've got to get in this gravy train. There's, there's something happening here, you know, and um, at that very same time, that's when uh, my ex-wife was pregnant with our first child. Yeah. You know, so your personal yeah. life had um, obviously I was going to ask how yes. your personal life was developing so during that window of time 2000 to 2007 you've uh, mentioned why so obviously yes. you got married and um, yes. had children Settled in a way yeah. yeah so you know I 
settled down with a, with, a, with a girl I had known for some time and we'd been friends, we dated and not and then broken up and then we decided to get married eventually. We'd known each other for a good seven years by the time we got married and so at the point that our baby is being born, that's when I'm now in the game of mortgages and we moved to Northampton because we had a flat in, uh, in, 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 in Mitcham yeah. and we just thought, you know, we want to raise our child away from you know the stereotypical issues in london we yeah. just want to have a child be raised in northampton and you yeah. know lovely place lovely <laughs> place I, I love northampton yeah. and um we got here and then i did a lot of pipeline mortgage uh, business to that i was looking at you know i'm going to make a couple of hundred grand out of this by the mm -hmm. end of the year because there was a lot of money to be made at that time yeah. and just as i'm actually at the i had a couple of deals complete smaller amounts so i had bigger deals now coming so I'm at the hospital, my baby's just been born, you know, and then I get a phone call from the developer and um, I've been seeing what's, what was in the news. Yeah. And so my baby's just over there, you know, with the mom and, and I'm sort of in a private room next door and I'm being told, you know, we can't do those, those houses anymore. I had four houses about to complete and each one of those had approximately, at that time, there were good deals to be had. There was about sort of 14, 18 grand of commission on each of those sales. And then I'm told, you know, the banks are no longer lending. They completely stopped. I mean, they, they didn't sort of slow down the lending. They just cut off the tap. You know, they just shut off the tap. No oh, more I, money. Um, uh, like not mortgages, but <clears throat> at the time I was building uh, a, a product called e-filing, oh, which yes. was needing a lot of funding for it. And part of that funding was the company overdraft. Yes. And I'd using some personal finance I'd built from selling a previous business. So yes. all of that was going into this. And I got an email from my bank telling me they were going to withdraw the overdraft. And they wanted all their back. money back. I uh, wanted all their money back. And I was like, that's going to sink my business. Yeah. And they've just told me by email, yeah. they're going to sink my business. So I was in that environment at yes. that time yeah. uh, where things around 2008 yes. or nine were going to happen. And the irony was that was one of the customers that was lined up to use this product we were building. Um, and had said, we're interested in working with you on it, was the bank that sent me the email. <laughs> oh, okay. um, it's another division of the bank. Yeah, another division of bank. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, so it was a ruthless time for business. Yeah, it, 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 was, it was particularly difficult. So at this point, I'm just looking at myself, I'm just, uh, you know, just, just mm, what am I going to do now? You know, I've got a baby there. I've got, you know, the wife is on maternity. What am I going to do? So, it was, so what was your, uh, was this still whilst you was working at the bank? No, I'd left the bank. Okay, so was so, you self-employed? I was self-employed at this point. Right. And, you know, I had enough proof to say, you know, this could work because I'd earned a bit of money. So yeah. I was sort of scaling up. So, we, so we've, we've missed the big part yes. of this story here. Yeah. Got to yeah. roll back on. Yeah. So during, um, so to fill, it, fill out this picture, so... Yes. You was working with the bank till 2007? Yes, so I left the bank. just before the credit crunch? Yeah, early uh -huh. on, it was kind of around, I left around February. Yeah. Although, you see, in hindsight, I, I probably should have, I, I, did, I, I couldn't have known. No. But at that time, at the bank, where we used to sort of lend, I used to lend sort of approve, well, I, well, I didn't really approve the loans, but I would actually process the loan and yeah. get them approved by the managers, as it were. So yeah. I was sort of processing loans that were successful, sort of 15 to 25 loans per day kind of thing. Yeah. That's just me, yeah? That's and that's a lot of people. And you'd, um, and so at that point yes. in 2007, yes. you then took the, your first step and for the first time became 
self-employed. Yes. So, so I'll, I'll take you back a little bit. Why, yeah. why am I mentioning this number of loans yeah. that we're approving yeah. per day? So then these other people in the branch, there's like six of us, seven of us in the branch. So we're all sort of approving loans of that sort of number yeah. for each one of us, the, the, the people in the branch. This is 2006, sort of, we started to feel that the numbers were thinning out. They're thinning out really bad and then such that we were only approving like 15 loans a week. This is, this is, this is how bad things really got. But we, yeah. at that point, nothing was actually bad. Nothing was going on. But someone within the subprime market, which was our number one sort of uh, source of capital at that point, mm-hmm. someone within the subprime market, something was happening. Yeah. Even the people, there was a lot of defaults. A lot of people were not actually taking loans anymore. And then a lot of people had sort of taken up way too much credit. Yeah. So there was every sign that something's happening. You know, like if you remember that story, but if you saw the pictures of the tsunami in, in Indonesia many years ago, that the people at the, at the beach could see the water going back. It right. kept on going back and they couldn't, they, di- they didn't know that this was actually a significant sign. No. But for us, the, something was happening in the, um, if, if you like, in the, in the finance world where something was happening with loans. We didn't know. No. So by the time I'm going Somebody into somewhere knew. <laughs> some, someone somewhere no. knew. But there no. were every, now looking back, there was every sign that this thing is about to blow up. Yeah. You know, this thing is about to, you know, really to be blown up to smithereens. It, it was, now it's very obvious this is what was going to happen. Yeah. So at this point, I'm leaving it because I'm thinking, you know, so this job, you know, we're not really making any money. I'm not making target. I'm not making bonus anymore. I'm back to the basic income. I should go into self-employment. Yeah. So I spoke with a guy who was a mortgage broker back in London and he, mm-hmm. he'd given me a job. So I was actually doing sort of small time mortgage. Um, they used to call them introducers, but I was building up to become a mortgage broker. So as um, in the industry, it's called an uh, IAR, authorised uh, rep set. Is yeah, something, something like that, yes. Yeah. Uh, but I was working under him. I didn't, I didn't have my authorization, but no. I was working towards my authorization. So essentially, I was still doing a sales job. Yeah. So I was getting commission from this guy, good money from the guy. He had, he had given me a, um, I call him a guy because it was, it was a small company. And so I thought, you know, I can scale this thing up. You know, I got to Northampton, I go join this group of developers and mortgage brokers, and I did my CMAP, uh, and, and I'm... Yes, you know, I'm geared up for big things, you know, you know, and... Uh, so your, your life's looking good. Yes, and there's a baby that, coming. 2007, <laughs> yes. 2008. Yes. Um, you're married, settled, living yes. in Northampton. You've just had your first child, just been born. Yes. And then you get a phone call. Yes, and that's, that, that's just, you know, it just chopped me at my knees. Like, I, I was just floored. What am I going to do? So I had a bit of residual money, so we could keep we could keep ourselves going for for for, for a while, and then all of the work that I was used to. So th- those days, even sales company, I'm like starting to look for jobs and all that. I can't get jobs, yeah. and I think I was actually at home for a good year, yeah. just couldn't get jobs. There no, I thought you know if I can't, there's no mortgages. Let me just go do some kind of sales job, some kind of call center job or something. Nothing was happening. It was so bad, and then eventually things started to soften up a little bit around 2010. Yeah. I would say thereabout. So all nine was completely dead for me. Like, and I'm just hanging around the house. You know, I'm looking after the baby, and the missus has gone back to work now. Yeah. Um, it was it was strange. I was just, and it must have been. You just said it was strange, but yeah. it must have also been a huge strain. It was a massive strain. But at that time, I started doing these other things as well. I'm starting to think, okay, so if I can't do this, let me go on to. I think at that point there was a, something of a revolution on eBay. Yeah. where you could start sell sell things on eBay from sort of just the things around your house, but you could sort of do drop shipping. 
So start doing a bit of this drop shipping, not the way they do it now, but back then, you know, you, you really could sell them. And, that, and I started to make some money. Yeah. So I wasn't just loafing around the house. So I, so I was making some money. And then I was learning a bit more about e-commerce at this time. And I, then I started to sell quite a lot of stuff on, on eBay, things I used to get from other people, like TVs and sort of secondhand goods. And then when things started to open up for me, I thought, you know, I, I just need to get a job. I need to go back to work. So I ended up, I did a stint in recruitment in not too far from here in, in Milton Keynes, nursing recruitment. And I was only there for a very short space of time. And I was very successful with it in that very short space of time. But I'd done another stint in London. Mm-hmm. And my boss in London, that job, he said, you know, I want you to come back because we're very good at your job. And that's once again, back in the world of me communicating and selling. So he'd given me a job, only a one-month contract to sort of, they were an events company slash advertising slash magazine. Small, tiny company with only three people in the office. And he was very impressed with how I did. And he says, you know, he expected that I would probably make for him about 10 grand to get him out of a hole. But I made him roughly around 30-something thousand pounds in the, within that month. Because I was hungry, you know, yeah. <laughs> this was my first time back in work. Yeah. And, I, and I'm thinking, I need to make, you know, the most of this. And so I was very good at that. And then I went back to recruitment, which I did very well as well. And then he calls me, he says, you know, I've got a job for you. You'll have international travel, uh, you know, all this and all that. And I just love the idea of, you know, flying to America, you know, on company tab to do <laughs> business, you know. It, it, it gave me the sense of, you know, being back in the big time, if you like. Yeah. So I went back and I was very successful with that by the time I left. There was 15 people in the office now and the company was really growing big. It was a business that was, um, uh, if you like to call it, trade press for sustainability. All this stuff that's now, now it's now kind of uh, mainstream. So why, why did you leave? Uh, you, you, you've just described that mm-hmm. you hopped between a couple of jobs. Yes. Um, so you started doing eBay business. A lot of people do the eBay business yes. and do it very well, mm-hmm. but... I'm interpreting from what you're saying that it brought some a bit of money in, but it wasn't. Enough it wasn't to, consistent. No. Yes. So you took a job, um, recruitment, um, selling, uh, well, advertising, trade, advertising. Yes, and, yeah. Went back to recruitment, then went back to that job. Did that? Yes, that that's actually up? how it happened. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then things were building up. You're traveling yes. internationally. I, I was going, loving it. You know, uh, I was enjoying it. Yes. So you're describing that um, you've gone back into the world of work. Yes, the corporate um, world. As yeah. a um, yeah, corporate or um, getting a set of wage. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got two questions, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how did that change the dynamic at home? Uh, because you've gone from um, your wife's gone and been the breadwinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're back out at work, so how's um, sort of the light? You know, how's home changing? Yes, and then then moving mm-hmm. on to why did that role that was fantastic mm-hmm. in Tetra come to an end? Yeah, so things obviously get better. You know, the, the missus didn't need to sort of work nearly as hard as yeah. you know. So I was able to stabilize things back at home again, and things were you know we had our second child, 2010, there about 2011, he was born. Sorry. <laughs> Forget something. We're not in that <laughs> Yeah, so things at home, you know, we're better because obviously it's just better when there's more money and, yeah. you know, you're, you're you're keeping up with your payments, you're keeping up with everything. So everything's just more stable. And I'm in this job. I love the job. Yeah. But at some point, weird politics just happens in some of these corporations. And then you, you, you think, you know... <laughs> 
I don't believe I used to believe in job security that there's such a thing as you should always try and achieve job security until I realized you know if you don't own the company you know they get rid of you when they feel like it kind of thing you know it doesn't it doesn't matter how good you are if if something some element comes into the company and they're just not happy about this or about that they want a different direction they will do whatever they want with you you know and that's something I struggled with because I thought I thought I deserved a bit more loyalty as it were but you know I can't really get into it as it, as it were but um, at the same time I, I've started to really ache within myself that you know I really should go back to the entrepreneurial sort of route because it's it's just and to be honest with you I think we talked about this at the um, at the event that at that point I would tell you honestly that my mental health was really suffering because I didn't understand why one day I'm sort of doing very well, I'm doing everything the company wants me to do. And, I'm, and then they're starting to try and adjust the, 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 the commission structure down, such that they pay me less and I start to get things like, oh, you know, I can't pay you this month, I'll pay you next month. And not, not because the company had no money, but there was sort of strange behaviors, which were not necessary. Right. And there was other elements, which in my, to my mind at that time, felt like favoritism. Right. And there were so many things I, I, I just couldn't understand. You know, I, I thought because I, I, I think if I'm if I'm straight and loyal with you, I expect the same from you kind of thing. Yeah. So and then I one of my friends explained to me that, look, you know, your boss really owes you nothing. You know, really, he doesn't. The day he doesn't need you, he doesn't need you. And you find someone else to do your job. That's just reality. I find that surreal. Um, not everybody works that way, but I know mm. that some people do. Yeah. The... There's, I mean, it, it's right that a boss doesn't owe you anything mm. in that sense. But the same vein, if something's working, it's working well and it's working well for the business, you don't break it. That's, that's, I mean, nothing is logical sometimes when you work for people. It's just they will do things how they feel sometimes. Mm. I mean, I've worked in many smaller companies and personalities sort of they trump logic. Yeah. It's it's very much about what someone is what's annoying them today or whatever. So, and I just at this point I was sort of in my late thirties as it were, mm-hmm. and I'm starting to have this sense that you know this kind of being treated like a child is starting to hurt a little bit. Okay. It's not it's not um, in my twenties you could sort of push me around a little bit if you could you know for the purposes of you know mm-hmm. trying to motivate me or whatever. But I just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't take it anymore. So how's that affecting you? You, you said it's affecting your mental health. Mm. So how is that affecting you outside of work? It was, it was very difficult because um, I, I did try to communicate with, with, with the wife at the time that you know this, this, this stuff is really hard for me. Mm. You know what's going on, and you know I wasn't really raised to sort of cry out and sort of show a lot of emotion and weakness. And I find sometimes also the people around you who sort of expect you to keep earning, um, to keep the ship afloat, as it were, mm. when you are um, in a vulnerable condition like that, they, they don't always sort of, um, how do I explain? They, 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 they also worry about their own sort of position being, being, being threatened, as it were. They start to worry about themselves being hungry because you're not, you know, earning or you're not functioning correctly, kind of thing. So it, it starts to, um, in some people anyway, it creates some sort of self-serving sort of survival mechanism. So they start to think about themselves more than they think about your condition. That's how I felt. Mm-hmm. 
So, and then I went into another role after that, which I actually got headhunted to come and start a recruitment firm. Start a recruitment yes, firm? Yes, okay. from scratch. And at this point, I'd left the job in London. I'd been doing a bit of um, temping here and there in London still, but I wasn't commuting. I didn't want to commute to London anymore. I just, I just had an evolution. I just, I just changed. I just didn't want to do this anymore. You know, and with everything that was going on, I just felt like, you know, I've, I've always felt like, you know, if you've got capabilities, you can sort of use your skills somewhere else. You can create more opportunities with your skills. So I got headhunted and then this was a, it was a group of people who had created a, a recruitment firm out of um, crowdfunded recruitment firm. So, yeah, they, they just came together. They put together a bit of money. They said, we want to start a recruitment firm. And so they, they hired me as a director, operations director. So I managed to, I went into that one. I was there for two years. It started off as a, it started as a project, like a project management sort of thing that at the end of the project, you come off. And some, at some point they really wanted me to be there long-term, but it had a lot more complexity in terms of the partnership mechanism with crowdfunding. Yeah. Everyone has got something to say. Everybody's got a slice of the pie. Yes, everybody's got a slice of the pie and it becomes extremely unwieldy and unmanageable. And not everyone who was in this sort of, um, in the whole uh, uh, scheme had any sense of what it takes to run a business or the sort of milestones, the sort of challenges you need, you, you meet and how you overcome them and where there's a, the horizon, you know, the, the long-term horizon of when, when do we achieve this, when do we do this. So I, I set everything up and after that, um, I started to see that, you know, this is not, I can't keep on doing this because they, there was way too much um, things, nothing to do with work. Okay. A lot more to do with just the characters, the human beings involved. It, people management. People management. Both up and down. I'm yes. Imagining. So, you know, I think one of the most unpredictable things to work with is a, a human beings. And the more they, the more you have, the more complexity and unpredictability you have. And, you know, you either sort of, I, I don't even know how people who sort of deal with a lot of people with a lot of say, I don't know how they do that, like football managers and people like that. I don't know how they do it because it's just all pressure. It's just noise. I don't even know how they tune out that noise and sort of focus on the goal to achieve what they're trying to achieve. So at that point, I had also gone back. Um, I traveled back to Zimbabwe, which is kind of where the, 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 the most recent episode, I traveled back to see my mom. And there was sort of talk within the media about there was a lot of new opportunities coming to the country because there was a change of government. That's when the old president uh, left uh, power. Yeah. So being an African, I thought, you know, let me go back home. Let me see if I can help to develop my own country. Yeah. You know, let me just see. And I wanted to, I wanted an inspiration at this point. Did you take your family back with you? No, I didn't. I just went on a fact-finding mission. Right. Um, and we were, our thought processes were together with the wife. We thought, you know, maybe to some extent, maybe we could start to rebuild ourselves back into the country and, I don't know, raise our children back here or whatever. There was a lot of that within the air. So, yeah. so I went across there to do a fact-finding mission. I just wanted to see what's, what, what, what actually, what's a business environment like? Because yeah. I'd always ever gone back as a, as a returning sort of um, going back to live with family, see family, see mom, see dad uh, before he passed on. And so this time I went there as a businessman. Yeah. I went there to prospect to see. So I learned about everything about the mining sector, the farming sector, a lot of the goods that we've got here in the UK, food, a lot of food comes from Zimbabwe, believe it or not, avocados and stuff like that. And then, but one of the things that I discovered was that this country lacks mechanization 
it lacks machinery. If they if it lacks anything else, the the one thing it lacks the most is just mechani mechanization. There's infrastructure is reasonable. It's not fantastic, but it's reasonable. Yeah. But there's not enough machines to do a lot of things, to create things. So a lot of things are imported. Okay. Things that shouldn't be imported, things that people could make in the country. So I decided to go on this journey of trying to find out, you know, what kind of machinery would I even start with? And some, in some of the conversations I had, someone mentioned something about uh, something innocuous. It says, oh, I need to go to South Africa to buy ear tags for my cattle. And I said to him, why do you have to go to South Africa to buy ear tags? You know, he, he had started, he had, he had a herd of uh, cattle, yeah. um, but he couldn't keep up with the numbers and all of that sort of stuff. He just wanted to get a bit more on the commercial side of it. So I said, why, why do you have to go to South Africa to buy you know, ear tags? Those are just plastic things that you just stick to the, to the ear of the cow. He says, oh, because no one does them here in Zim. Wow. says, are you sure? He says, yeah, there's no, there's no company that does that. There's no such thing here in Zimbabwe. So then I started searching up and then I discovered that. I said, so how do they actually make them? What, what, is, the, what is this stuff? And then I discovered those things are made of plastic, which can be put in a mold and you just, you know, heated plastic, put it in a mold, it comes out and that's, that's an air tag. And then I discovered that you, the way you write on the air tag, I said, is that actually ink? Is that what, how do they write on the air tag, the name or the name of the farm or, or the number of that cow or, or whatever information you put on the air tag? And said, oh, you know, um, I don't know how they do that. So I said, at this point, my mind is starting to go into sort of overdrive now. I'm deep in this. How, what, what is going on? How do I do this? And then I discovered that there's something called a laser machine. Okay, so the laser machine is the one that sort of scans across and then it creates, it engraves and it creates that number on the plastic. And then I start looking and I'm looking and I'm going to Alibaba. I came back from Zimbabwe after I'd been there for like a month. And I'm on Alibaba and I'm talking to people in China. And then I'm watching videos upon videos upon videos. I wasn't watching anything else on TV other than laser cutting, laser engraving machinery. And then I'm learning about this stuff. Um, I, I literally was radicalizing myself in, in this stuff. You know? So, And then I, suddenly I know a lot about laser machines. And then I thought, okay, so there's that laser machine that does all of that. And there's another one that actually cuts wood and it then engraves and all of this all of this stuff and i start to really think to myself okay so i can get a laser machine and take it back to zimbabwe and start creating fabricating things or furniture or tools or i, I really could do this but it wasn't as time went on we had like a like a, like elections in zimbabwe and there was a lot of political upheaval and things started to get a bit weird so the missus at home was like you know i'm not really sure that we want to go now because you know some people died during the election and things like that and so i went to china okay. to learn more about these laser machines so i see the machine in work at, at work and actually play around with it, actually learn on it and so i bought the machine just uh, to mm. understand at this mm. time so mm -hmm. your travel to zimbabwe mm -hmm. your research time spent yes. there you travel to China mm -hmm. um, and then buying machine. Was you was this during a time where you was out of work? I was in recruitment at that time. You was in the in the, in the in the recruitment in the firm that I'd been doing recruitment with towards the end. So yeah. I was setting myself up to say, you know, I told these these, these people that you know I'm, I'm going to leave you, yeah. and I'm going to leave you at this point, sort of end of August. Yeah. So in the lead up to that, that's when I sort of between sort of January, February, March, April, May. That's when yeah. I'd been to China, done my research, been to China, bought the machinery such that the machinery showed up in sort of September time. 
Okay, so so mm-hmm. you had a salary coming in during yes. this period of time, and I had some money saved up. Okay. I, was, I was making enough money <clears throat> to sort of keep a, a good chunk of it to keep going. Okay. So I had believed in myself that you know, yeah. let me give myself six months. I've got a six months sort of run out. I've got some money, you know, for for six months. And that just ran out really quick. (laughs) (laughs) If you think you need six months, save up 12. (laughs) I think think that's how you do it, you know. And so I get the machine. So the machine is, it comes to my house and I put it in my shed and I haven't got a clue what to do with this thing. Okay, it's, it's, it's yay big, you know. I've seen one. My wife used one. She uh, did some uh, um, sort of making uh, gift boxes. Yes. And she had a laser cutter that would cut out within plastics she, and yes. supply custom-made gift boxes. Yes. So, I've, I've so seen you know exactly one, what yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah. So I had a thing there. So I discovered, okay, I've seen all of these videos on YouTube on, on, on what, what, what you can make. And it's like, there's just no, there's no end to the number of products that you can, make, yeah. you can make with the machine. And that became a confusing point for me as well. There was just too much to the market. Where do I even start? Uh, you know, what products do I even start making? So I put myself into this state I needed to learn. And I'd never actually seen the machine at work other than when I went to China and then the videos. Then I discovered I actually need to learn. Um, it, so the machine is not, put it this way, the machine itself is not a business. No. It's like a piece of land. Yeah. It's like a farm. Yeah? yeah. This here, where we are here, is a piece of land. Someone could have used this as a racetrack. Yeah. They could have used this to plant um, rapeseed oil, whatever. Yeah. They could have used this for anything else or they used it for these buildings. Yeah. Right. So the machine itself, it, 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 you, you, what you program into it is what it produces for you. It doesn't think for you. You had a crash course in CAD. Yes. <laughs> so at this point, I've never actually designed anything at all. I, I have no idea. And I'm talking to one of my friends who is in, who's a really sort of tech guru. And he's saying, oh, you need to learn Photoshop. I don't even know. I, I've heard of Photoshop. But I have no idea. How, how do you do? And then I, I, say, I start playing around and then I'm like, okay. And so I used to buy the designs with the money that I had mm-hmm. to play around, to put them into, the, plug them into the machine to produce some products. And then I realized I can't actually afford to buy designs from people. These designs are too expensive. Like in a lot of the things I was doing was experimental at this point. So I can't keep paying someone. I've just, yeah. I'm having a flashback yeah. here. So I'm trying to pitch this scenario because I'm trying to, um, I had an, an experience with my wife yes. before we were married. We were married? Yeah, we were married at the time. And the when I started my very first proper business was mm. in web design. Yes. And I got my first order from somebody who said, right, we need to build a website for me. This is how we want it. Uh, I had no idea how to do it. Okay. So I'm sat in our spare bedroom. We had a little two bedroom house in Luton. Oh, yes. And um, I'm sitting there, 1999. All right. And um, the, I've got a book open which I bought off Amazon and I'm looking through and I'm copying onto the computer how to, to build a to website. Build, build this website. She walks in with a cup of tea. She said, what are you doing? So I'm just learning how to do this. She said, you started a web design company and you don't even know how to design bloody websites. She threw the tea down and stormed out because quite literally I'd, I'd left a job, paid job yes. and started from yeah. that. Listening to you talk here sounds like a very similar situation in that you'd gone to Zimbabwe, done this research, then yeah. gone to China. Yes. Now, I've been to China a couple of times for yes. work. It's not cheap. No. They um, bought a um, 
Big, so, big so old CNC, machine, yeah. Uh, bought a laser <laughs> cutter, CNC, or whatever. Yes, that's what's um, going. Uh, brought that back. Well, not brought. She got it shipped over to the UK. You've got this great big machine. You're finding out that actually, I don't even know how to do <laughs> yeah. this, and you're going to have to buy these things. How did your wife respond to that? Well, she had an, an initial level of excitement about it. Like there was something. She said, yeah, "I know you work it out. I know you figure it out." Yeah. But the longer it went before I knew what I was doing, the more frustrated she got. Yeah, that sounds fair. And then I started running out of money and all of this. And then I made a whole bunch of products that I was going to sell in, in Zim. And I sent to, I went over there to try and sort of recoup some of my money. And those products were just not really and truly, they were just not good enough. So I didn't make any money out of that trip. It was a complete, complete loss making trip. And so she was not happy with that at all. Yeah. Um, and then I came back and I got a bit of sort of piecework here and there kind of thing to just get a bit of money coming in. And I was doing a bit of careering uh, with my car to just make sure I've got money coming in. And But meanwhile, I was spending a lot of my time just learning, 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 and learning, learning, and learning. And so before I knew it, I became pretty good at, I, I don't actually use Photoshop, I use the other one called Coral Draw. I'd never actually seen that stuff before, but I had to sit there and spend a lot of time in my shed, in my spare time, creating products and rendering them on the machine. And then I started selling them. I started selling more and more at events and more and more at um, online. And I started making money. What sort of products mm. are we talking here now? So I was, I, was, so I was making some things for the Zimbabwe market, which were like clocks and, um, and plaques with sort of poetry written on them, things that Zimbabwean people understand. And then I started making earrings out of the thinner materials. And then I was making other things out of um, acrylic. So this was all being shipped to Zimbabwe? No, no. At this point, I realized the whole Zimbabwe connection right. is... So I'm, Zimbabwe I'm is within the UK? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Within, the, within the UK. And then I was shipping them as far as Australia and America and, and places like that. Um, and then I started doing Etsy. And that was I was making lampshades and stuff like that. And that was selling very well. And so there was a, a massive shift in fortunes for me when it came to that. But I still was, and I think the problem was always, I wasn't sort of quite making enough money to live off of that. Right. So I had to keep a job, keep doing this part-time stuff. And somewhere along the way, I, I would have some good months. And I think that these were some of the biggest knocks for me. I have some, like a good run, a good number of months, things are really working. And then I'm just struggling. I'm not making a lot of money again. So it's the stop-start nature of it, where as determined as I am, it sort of kind of almost eats away at your spirit. It's a very famine and feast when you're running your own business. Yes. So, so that, that's, that to me, if you ask me what one of the hardest things I've found about running a business is controlling your emotions when you're a feast and famine sort of, um, type, type of scenario. Because when no orders come in, mm. And when you're trying to sell all of this stuff and nothing's happening, it is depressing as hell. Yeah. And then you wake up and you've got a whole lot of orders to fulfill. And suddenly, you know what? I'm a champion. <laughs> you know, <laughs> suddenly I feel like you know, give me anything and I'll, I'll win. You know. But with going through that famine and feast, mm. and then if you just described your every spare moment you've got, mm. uh, you're in your shed and you're mm. fulfilling orders, and then but over and above that you're then doing delivery courier yes. type work as well mm. so you're effectively holding down two jobs you're trying to get your own business off the ground mm -hmm. but you're also um 
doing another job yes. to, uh, to cover the bills. Yes. What strain did that put on your home life? Um, we, I mean, we, we were together for 17 years. Um, and there were a lot of things that had developed over time, problems. Mm. And, you know, anyone who's been married to anyone for a long time, you know, they, they, there are certain problems that have been going on for a long time. But they kind of got worse as a result of this whole thing. Um, at some point, we just ended up on two completely different paths. Um, and she just thought I should just go and get a job in an office somewhere. And I was like, I, I just don't have it in me. I, I couldn't explain it. Mm-hmm. I, and I think for most people who listen, apart from people in this game of entrepreneurship, yeah. no one else gets it. But at some point, we just ended up completely um, stra- estranged from each other because we couldn't, we couldn't find a middle ground. Um, and we had to go separate ways as well, yeah. which, you know, it was regrettable at the time, but I don't look back at, um, at it as, I mean, I miss my children, no lie about that. I miss seeing them every morning, but um, it's, we, we ended up where we ended up kind of thing. And it, it would have been a contributing factor. Yeah. So it they, wouldn't have been the only thing, no. but it would have been a contributing factor. That's, it's a very difficult thing. Uh, it, I'm sat here talking to you now. Mm. Yesterday was my 24th wedding anniversary oh, wow, that's with the lady who threw the cup of tea down. I <laughs> yeah. said, you don't even know how to do this and this is what you've done. <laughs> the, uh, and it is, um, I can speak from experience, mm. uh, when you are trying to get something off the ground mm. or when you're in the very early stage of businesses, it is, as you've, describe yourself so all-consuming that it is intensely difficult to maintain other relationships. I've spoken to other guests on this podcast who've spoken about friendships breaking down, um, relationships with family uh, drifting apart uh, because you're trying so desperately Mm. to create something and you can see further ahead what you're trying to build and what you're trying to aspire towards and there you know some the the justification in yourself is that the it will be better when i get there yes the opposite side something i've learned from my wife as Mm. well is that at what cost and yes. the and it's that sort of aspect. Uh, now I will. Uh, I've complimented my wife on this podcast before, and mm. I'll compliment her again. You know, you have to earn his brand when you can. <laughs> you but she's very good at sort of pulling back in. And I'm mm. I'm I'm lucky now to build the business to a stage where the it's not so all consuming all the time mm, for me. There okay. are times. It's like yeah. famine and feast. Famine and feast mentioned yes. earlier. But it is for anybody listening to this. It is a difficult to try and walk that line because the line's not visible is it no the there isn't you can't turn around and think right okay i'm i'm taking a bit extra sacrifice here i'm giving back there there is just nothing until you're so far away from that line yes that the warning signs are they're they're not even there literally you're in you're in the consequence before you even see yes that's very it's a a difficult period It, it is a difficult period um and uh, you see, the, the most difficult thing about being an entrepreneur, amongst other things, yeah. is no one gets you. No. 
<laughs> it doesn't matter how you try to simplify the people, yeah. your way of thinking or what yeah. you see. Yeah. You know, apart from other people who are actually doing exactly the same thing as you, yeah. no one else gets you. I mean, it's almost like watching those people doing, you know, Tour de France cycling. And you're like, why are you going up a mountain, you know, on an empty stomach, on just water? And you're at the you're at last, you're at the very back. What, what are you doing? Do you have to do this? You know, go and get a job. Go, go work at Tesco's. You will just be better off. You won't be in so much pain. But you can't you can't explain the drive to some extent. You know, to come back to to the name of this book. I I don't know. I don't know that. I, you know, and, and that's where the foolhardy side of it comes out of it. You know, they, and they sort of um, our, our entrepreneurs are often looked upon as sort of self destructive. Yes. to some extent but I, I i don't know how to be someone else no. and and this has always been me <laughs> i don't know how and i try you know but i said i've seen some of your art i'll call it art mm. <clears throat> because it is art mm. and they are really you know just really impressive thank you and uh, so doing what you do now mm. how does that make you feel uh, and and why do you do it you know, I I just I feel very positive and good within myself. You know, that's that's despite everything that you could point in that you know can be called losses. Mm. Um, I, I I feel I feel I feel very comfortable with myself, yeah. and I feel like you know when I found myself in in that state and I'm kind of I'm on coral drawing, I'm drawing stuff and I'm actually designing things that I'm actually making. I mean, it's like I, I found a new me. Like it's it's like this is who I was when I was ten years old. And, it's, and when someone doesn't get that, you know, be it a friend or, or partner or whatever, I can't help them because this is, it's a, it's a rebirth, if you want to call it that. And it's just, I, I, can't, I can't explain, you know, that this is really me finding out. And, and I suppose I'm in my 40s now. And I think a lot of this stuff happens when you're in your 40s, as it were, they, <laughs> because, you know, you, you, you focus on everything else that sort of fits the mold and that sort of... Um, uh, you know, path path of least resistance, as it were. Mm. But you really deep down inside, you're not really yourself. You're you're kind of dying, and that's kind of how I felt for a very long time. And I feel alive. You know, I'm 46 now, and I, and I feel like you. I, I feel like I'm 16 years old again. You know, despite everything else you pointed. At, oh, are you sure? You know, but but the what's so when you. Um when we talk about your younger years and your mm. first step at running your own business, mm. it was very clear then that the the money was the motivation, the better life. Yes. The I I could be completely off the wall here, mm. so correct me if I am. But I'm pick, I'm seeing a picture of somebody who's travelled from Zimbabwe to the UK to create a, a better, better life. life. Yes. The measure of that better life is often money as in you can have a bigger house better car better so you're so you're driving towards that all the way and then as you've gone on and you've when things haven't gone well you've picked up an, another a, a career a job where you yeah. get to earn those money but you've been sort of aiming towards that you've gone seeking opportunities back in Zimbabwe you've gone over to China and mm. the it's constant striving from that with a very stoic mm. work ethic What's your driver and motivation now? You know, I was thinking about that as I was coming here. So it's not really money. 
I definitely want to be rich. You know, I, I no longer have my BMW that I had before that I really late. Um, and I, I, I still look at a lot of the trappings and I, but it's not really what drives me. And I don't think even back then it was always the thing that drove me. I think the thing that really drives me is this creative process, this process of creating something from nothing and, 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 and solving problems and looking at something that's completely abstract because my thinking process at all times is always abstract. Thinking, looking at the abstract and creating something out of something that just makes no sense to anyone else, but here we are kind of thing. It's, it's a lot more of the drive. And I always feel like, you know, when you solve problems, you know, that's when the money comes in. Or if, when, when you create something and you invent something, that's when the money comes in. It's, I've, I've also, maybe I'm wrong, but I often think that when you, it's only then can you actually become someone who is making money from your business because you've solved a problem or you've created a, a, a new product. And that sort of drives me more than, um, <clears throat> than the goal of making a million by the end of next year kind of thing. Does that, does that, does that make sense? It does. Um, listening to you, I can see, I see a, a sort of a change mm. um, because of sort of the early years, as I described earlier, mm. uh, like taking your first business, you was, work, yes. you're, you're, you was earning less in the bank. So you then went self-employed because you could earn more money. Yes. And I can see that's a very clear measure, clear definition. And you yes. just had a young family starting. Mm. So the motivation there um, comes across to me as getting a better life. Yes. And the, it, the world we live in, a better life is being able to buy the things that create yes. a better life. Yes. The, what you do now um, in your business is very creative. Yes. Uh, and by being very creative in what it is, itself, it's a very emotional thing. It's very emotive. So I'm seeing a different person now yes. in your mid forties to somebody <laughs> who um, in their sort of late twenties um, uh, with a young family. It's it's a very big switch, which isn't unusual when speaking yeah. to people who have, is it not? No, um, people's motivations who have on a sort of an entrepreneurial journey mm. change um, over time from what drives them. Myself, yeah. um, starting a young family, the measure was right. Need to get a better, money, better money, you know, money, need money. to get money, need to get money, need to get a better. Um, home for my children. Yes. You know, I want my children to have a stable home. Mm. Things that I never had in my younger years. Yes. The now, speaking about the business, I actually get more joy about seeing other people's achievements and other people's uh, progression and that stuff at uh, that level. I'm I'm kind of content now. I'm all right. Yeah, and um, so yeah. that's where I'm likening to listening to yourself. Yeah, and that's that's very much how I feel. And. I think even as I have uh, been growing up and maturing to who I am now, I've always had an influential sort of element in other people's lives. I've always been, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm the oldest, bro amongst, uh, my oldest brother amongst, uh, out of uh, seven children. So even as a, as a younger person, my brothers come to me to ask for, yeah. for, for advice. So, you know, if, if I was your friend, I probably would spend a lot of time me giving you some sort of advice <laughs> based on, on my thoughts or my experience. Yeah. So, so a lot of the people that have come in contact with me, friends, family, an element of their life has changed because I influence them kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I feel like that's just, that comes naturally with me. And so the things that I sell is there's an element of me trying to influence people. Um, 
it's art <laughs> like you said you know i'm trying to influence people to say look at this beautiful thing you know don't you love it <laughs> you know that's and, and it's coming out of i don't know somewhere within my psyche creative psyche like you know let me make something beautiful let me make something nice let me make something you know that you put in your house and it actually it's actually something that you look at in wow that's actually wonderful and so when i get the comments on etsy and people looking at it and oh you know they love the product it it kind of fulfills for me something so what's your aspirations for your business going forward i wanted to be more of a business than something that only reflects my character um i, I wanted to be um I want it to be one that doesn't need to be propped up by sort of uh, constantly looking for outside funding. I want it to be more self-sustaining, to just get bigger, such that the creative process is not, um, if you like, is not sort of um, hindered or interfered with by the need for bread and butter. Okay. Because that's a fight. The yeah. bread and butter, you know, you, you you sit in the lab or you sit in the, in the in the studio and you're creating something, but you have to think, oh, you know, how much money have I made? Yeah. Is this making me money? Should I stop? Should I go and, you know, find more money? And so that, that sort of cycle of sort of, um, not necessarily, it, it, it sometimes feels like I'm spinning my words in one place because like you said, it's feast and famine. So you, you make a lot and then you make nothing. So have you, you know, on average, have you made a lot kind of thing? Right. So that's just, so there's a lot more steps I need to take and a lot more relationships I need to build to sort of uh, uh, achieve escape velocity, as they call it. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm trying to achieve at the moment. Yeah. yeah. And you've, um, bit, you've got a fair amount of life experience that mm. feeds into your sort of um, business journey with the two, you know, the two main sort of experiences you've had there from polar opposites, really, yes. and the impact it's had to you personally the putting that all together if you uh, you mentioned about sort of influence or helping mm. the young people coming to yes. advice so you're sat in front of a young <clears throat> aspiring um high energy uh david in front of you yes what advice would you give your younger self i would say to learn patience yeah you know i would say to learn that you know you you can't speed up the process of learning and you don't stop learning. No. Um, and I don't know, maybe I might be wrong, but I would say don't focus on the money. Yeah. Focus on your skills. And then the money will come. Yeah. That's, that's what I think. And the, I even see my business at the moment, one of my sort of thought processes is leaning very much towards training. Mm -hmm. um, I want to train people how to use laser machinery. And I would like to do that for younger people who are sort of in the creative space, such that the older they get, you know, by the time they're looking for work and they're looking to, you know, they're, create, they're already capable of using CNC machines. That's, that's kind of what's in my process in, in my mind at the moment, you know. Yeah. You know, so we'll see how that comes along. No, yeah. I wish you very good luck. Yeah. Thank you very much for coming and having a chat with myself here, David. It's been really great listening to you. Really uh, interesting story with so many lessons for people to take away from here i wish you every success thank you thank you thank you very much thanks for having me you know it's my first moment in light <laughs> so i really have enjoyed this and uh, keep doing what you do you know and i keep listening to the podcast every time so i love it thank you thank you for having thank me you very much.
I hope you enjoyed this interview. Uh, Please remember to hit follow on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. It really helps the algorithm and push this podcast up through the rankings. And also leave some feedback. I look forward to bringing you the next episode of Drive. Until next time, this is Drive, the small business podcast from UKBF.